Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt, and I'm thrilled today to have with me the great Nelson DeMille. He is the king of the suspense novel, And Nelson, over the course of his career, has sold tens of millions of books, including titles we all know like The General's Daughter, which was made into a movie starring John Travolta. Maybe we'll get some Travolta stories in a little bit. Word of Honor, made into a a movie starring Don Johnson. May Day, made into a movie starring Aidan Quinn. And one of my favorites, Plum Island, which introduces Detective John Corey, who is back in Nelson's latest excellent novel, The Maze. Nelson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Doug. Uh, it's great to to have you. It's it's even more special for me. I I want to open with a quick story. I I told you this the night we first met for the for the listeners. Nelson and I have known each other a long time and are friends, and I consider him a mentor. And uh, the last book that I read before I wrote my first book was your novel, The Gold Coast. And I was on vacation with my wife Megan in two thousand eight. And when I put it down, I thought to myself. I want to write books that make people feel the way this book made me feel. And on the flight home, I started what turned out to be my first novel. And uh, I was, you know, I had tinkered with writing, but was was not uh, not serious about it until then. Fast forward a few years, and my book is out and it's doing pretty well. And I get a phone call from some woman saying, "I help organize this." book fair that Nelson DeMille puts on every year at the Union League Club in New York City. And we read your book. We loved it. We'd like you to attend. And I thought, my God, you know, it all started with Nelson DeMille and it's now come full circle. Yeah. uh, You know, when I first started writing, I had a mentor. I was lucky to have a mentor too. And it's good to have one. Thank you for considering me a mentor, but uh, you kind of did it on your own. But I was really young and really totally clueless. This was back in the middle of the 1970s. I had a mentor named Bernie Geis who had published Valley of the Dolls, amongst other books. Mm-hmm. And um, for some reason, he just took me under his wing, and the rest was history. And by 78, I'd sold my first major novel, By the Rivers of Babylon, uh, for what was considered a fortune in those days. I don't even give you the number, but... Uh, and I was on my way and never looked back. And uh, sometimes what you need is a leg up. You know, we're talented, you're talented, I'm talented, but there's millions of talented people out there who will never get a break. And I think it helps to live in New York, too. If you live in New York, you're going to know people in the business, especially the publishing business, and that helps, too. Now that's true. When you, when you send the, the manuscripts out and then do the sort of walk around yeah. to meet the publishers, you can do half of it in Midtown, maybe right. a couple in downtown yeah. and things like that. We go to the right parties, too. That first night we met, though, at the book fair, we then made our way to the bar, had a few drinks, and uh, we're fast friends ever since. So in the spirit of that, one of the features on this show is we start with the favorite cocktail of our guest. And uh, today you have picked scotch. Right. 
So we, we, we give them the brand name too, Doers. Doers. Doers White a, Label. We've got a big bottle of Doers here. Oh my God, I'm watching that being poured. And I'm, we've also got some club soda. Should we cut out the club or just go, go uh, with the ice? We're okay with the ice. Okay. <laughs> All, All right. right. Now we're settled in. All righty. Cheers. It's great Cheers. to have you. There we go. So I wanted to go back even before Rivers of Babylon. So you're born nearby in Jamaica, New York. Mm-hmm. Was your was your mom and dad were they big readers? My dad was a big reader. Yeah, um, my father was Canadian and um, went through a different kind of school system. Uh, he read all the English classics, and um, we had a library at home, which was unusual back in the day. And um, he really instilled me, instilled in me, you know, the thing about reading. Of course, back when I was growing up, there was. Uh, there was TV, but I think there were three channels, maybe four, I mean, right. literally. And there was radio and, you know, comic books, I guess. But, you know, I became a reader really early on. And I think maybe at that point I decided I really want to become a writer. But I was reading a lot of the English classics, and uh, I said, well, I, I can't do this. <laughs> you know, we all have that feeling mm-hmm. as writers when we're reading somebody really amazing. We can't do this. We don't have to do that. We can do something, and we have, we have our own voice. Um, but I didn't really get into the writing thing until I got out of the Army, which was uh, 1969. Mm-hmm. I was back from Vietnam, and I decided I wanted to write the great American war novel. I mean, uh, every I think every educated soldier, whether it be officer or sergeant or PFC, comes back out of a war, thinks they're going to write the great American war novel, the way Mailer almost did, Norman Mailer with uh, The Naked and the Dead. Mm-hmm. And these are the people I read when I was that age, because this is what was around, uh, James Jones, and there was a, a, a slew of them. And I think maybe that that's what inspired me, too, to, to yeah. become a writer. Yeah, so and it's interesting, too, because I think a lot of, a lot of writers love being alone and, and are, you know, socially not uh, not the extroverts. But you, I, I know in high school, you were a good athlete. You were a football player. Yeah. Chased the girls around with some success. <laughs> and uh, But as you mentioned, went to, to Nam in, in 66. And you and I have had drinks many times. Yeah. It's, it's one thing you don't talk about too much. But I do know from your career, you were there from 66 to 69. Uh, and you want to be 66, 69. In Vietnam, uh, one year. One year, okay. 67, and, 68, yeah. Um, bronze star. Right, combat infantry, Brad. You were you're a platoon leader in the first cavalry, right? That's right. Yeah. Correct. Did you keep any kind of like a war diary, or did you write while you were? Oh, that's there? a good question. And I, no, the answer, the short answer is no. And I should have, but every officer had to keep a log, and um, it was kind of a skeleton of what happened every day. Uh, that that served me well later on when I wrote Word of Honor, mm-hmm. which is about almost 15, 16 years after the war. Uh, I never did write that novel I wanted to write you know, when I first started writing, partly because nobody was interested in Vietnam War novels back then. Mm-hmm. Then they became more popular, you know, uh, especially with movies like Platoon, and uh, there were a number of movies at that time that kind of spurred the publishing industry to look to now look at Vietnam in, in fictional form. But, you know, I had I had my maps, I had my notes, I still had most of my brain intact. I remembered what happened. Mm-hmm. And I had friends who were with me. And, you know, you get you get a lot of false memory syndrome uh when you're in combat because you think you think you saw something. It's like a Rashomon play. You think you saw something, and somebody else saw the exact same thing differently. Right. But, you know, look, I'm not writing, uh, you know, journalism. It's not nonfiction. It's fiction. So I was able to uh, sit down and write Word of Honor 
uh, which became a huge bestseller and optioned right away for the movie. It's never made into a movie, but we still have some possibilities of that if anybody wants to, any producer wants to look back at Vietnam, that's a good book to do it. Yeah, I I heard a funny quote about book options, which... You know, many, many, you, you can get killed anywhere in the process. You get an option yeah. and then it gets re-optioned next year. One guy was saying, book options are like sperm. Many are called and few are chosen. Right, but you can pay the rent with the with the option. That's right, eat. and they re-up it every year whether it gets made or not. Right. So after the Army, I created a little outline for this interview, and the next heading in my outline here is pen names and paperbacks. So you're out of the Army uh, in 69 and the 70s. What I've sort of referred to in my own notes here is a, a brief phase one of your writing career in which you were writing under certain pen names like Jack Cannon, Kurt Ladner, Brad Matthews, and the female pen name Ellen Kay. Right. So what, what was up with the pen names? <laughs> well, I was writing at that time a series. Of, you know, that, that was a time in the early 70s of the Knapp Commission and Serpico, and if anybody knows what all that is, you know, you know, police were very big topics of uh, fiction uh, and uh, and movies and, and TV. Mm-hmm. Um uh, there's a big crime wave all over the country, especially in New York. And he had these heroes who, you know, would save the day. And so I created the character Joe Riker, NYPD, and I was writing that. So I was known for that. I mean, to the extent that I was known at all in those days, uh, I was known for the, uh, the, the series. So when I wanted to write a standalone, uh, the publisher wanted me to write, you know, obviously change the brand mm-hmm. and, and come up with a name. And I came up with three male names easily. But then I wrote this biography, my only nonfiction of Barbara Walters. They wanted me to come up with a female name. I was thinking if I was a female, what name would I like to have? And well, my wife at the time was Ellen K. Wasserman. So we mm-hmm. just used the Ellen K. And that's how, that's how that that pen name came about. That's funny. And then you reverted back to the norm. I know, like, our mutual friend Lee Child is right. not actually Lee Child. He's Jim Grant, which is a fine name. You know, yeah. I'd yeah. go with that name my next go around. You're honing your craft, I guess, during this time. Before we get into the big success, I wanted to talk about your process as you honed it a bit. I know you well, and I know many writers in the in the business, and you are one of the hardest working writers out there. You're not the two novels a year churn and burn type. Your novels are extremely well plotted and researched and extremely well written. Can you talk a bit about the research you do? Because I know it, it involves, you know, if you're writing a book set in Russia, you're going to Russia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do a lot of research now online on the internet. Um, uh, but when I first started writing, you couldn't. You had to be there. Uh, you know, I, I, I break down the research into three categories. There's the field research, which means going to where you're writing about, whether it be Belfast, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, uh, or Vietnam, or Moscow, and you go there. You have to go there. Uh, you can't be totally an armchair uh, author. And then there's the interviews, which is interviewing people who in these occupations, whether they be cops, airline pilots, doctors, nurses, prostitutes. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to be a little bit of a journalist. And uh, and then there's, then there's the other kind of research, which you know, is a lot I call library research, which is now really internet. And uh, when you put those three things together, you can, you know, you... You come up with a feeling that the, that the book, you know, that the the writer knows what he's talking about, right. and a lot of the books you know you can just read them and you've read them too. You, you yeah, you feel you like know, you're not in good hands. You're not in good hands, yeah. and somebody's never never left their uh, their writing studio. Um, but you really have to get out, and also the language changes, Doug, as you know. And I've been writing since '74. Mm-hmm. The language has changed, and you have to listen to it. Yeah, and I, I hang around a lot of places where the language is spoken. 
mostly bars. One quick story on your research. You and I were at the same party and there were a number of other writers of your stature there, which is significantly higher than my own stature as a writer. And uh, the question of research came up and I, and I said to one who, I, who will remain nameless, although of course he's a, a good mutual friend of ours. Hmm. You know, what are you doing for research? He goes, oh, my research is very simple. I just read the latest DeMille novel. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that story. That's a good story, though. But yeah, I know what you're talking about, too. And so you uh, do you outline ahead of time? You know, the, the, the publisher still requires a little bit of an outline from the author before they release the money due on the outline. So I do something. Mm-hmm. The one I'm working on now, I just thought of it. It was like a 15-page Outline. It's not an outline that, so much. Do you use it for the writing of the novel or not is it really. just for the publisher? Just yeah. for the publisher. Okay. Not, so do you know the ending or, or maybe the outline changes dramatically? Sometimes you know the ending, you know, like in uh, my newest The Maze, I knew where it was going to end. Uh, some of them I have no idea. General's Daughter was a uh, really a classic murder mystery and uh, of the Agatha Christie type or uh, you, you name the, you know, the whodunit mm-hmm. uh, author. And I was not used to that format. And I didn't know who the murderer was myself. <laughs> I had to go back and, and then plan some clues and that type of thing. So every book is interesting, as you know. It's like writing a term paper on some subject you don't know a lot about. Yeah. Uh, it can be fun. It can be you know, grueling. And at the end of the day, you know, most writers will say, you know, I hate writing, but I love having written. And when you're done, mm-hmm. you're done. And it feels good. And you're on you're going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks, couple of months, whatever it takes to recharge batteries. Yeah, get the water back in the well. Right. As Hemingway says, you, you write by hand. I do. I, I, I do all my. I don't know how to type. Um, I write a longhand on yellow paper with number one pencils. They're soft. They glide easily, and mm-hmm. I do a second draft in uh, pencil. Then I give it to my poor. <laughs> yeah, your handwriting's terrible. Uh, I've seen that. Pretty bad. Fortunate uh, assistant who can read my handwriting, and she types it. And then I can play. I can play around with it on a computer. You're known for writing in the first person. Have you written any novels not in the first person? Yeah, a number of them. Um, uh, some of them started off in third person, but went to first because I realized. Uh, I think like my most acclaimed novel, literary acclaimed novel, The Gold Coast, started off in the third person. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great idea, but for some reason it wasn't going well. Um, and I, I just, just it just occurred to me, this has got to be a first person narrative. Some books are better off as third person, especially the action adventure, mm-hmm. the international intrigue, because you're skipping around from scene to scene. That's a big decision that the author has to make up front when. You're writing a novel, you have to say, all right, if this is a detective novel, we want to see it all from the eyes of this detective. Mm-hmm. We want to go with him or her and uh, and see the clues that he or her sees, he or she sees, or do we want to move around and show things that yeah. the, uh, the the detective doesn't know? With detective novels, it's usually first person. Uh, but there are times when, you know, my earlier novels were all third person because first person... In those days, there was a prejudice against first person. The, the joke used to be that, don't, don't forget Nelson's suicide notes are written in the first person <laughs> and stay away from yeah. it. And I did. I listened to this advice, which was not very good advice. And when I finally realized that you know some books have to be written in the first person, it kind of freed up a lot of you know, a lot of my writing. You just mentioned the Gold Coast there. It reminded me of advice you've given me over the years or helped me through. I had written a novel set on Wall Street, and it was focused mainly on the sales and trading aspects right. of Wall Street. You know, the, you know yeah. the one. And I know people on Wall Street, and so a number yeah. of them who were friends started, you know, there was this 
this uh, thing zinging around among them of which person was which character in the book yeah, and yeah. friends were getting upset and things like that. And you and I were out for a drink and I was telling you about it. You turned to me and you said, Doug, I wish I had a nickel for every person who thought they were a character in one of my books. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'll mention the book Ghosts of Wall Street. is my first book, your first book, mm-hmm. the first one I read. And I thought in many ways it was... Um, uh, as good as, in some ways, better than Bonfire of the Vanities. I think it was compared favorably to Bonfire. Oh, thank you. And uh, should be a movie. Absolutely should be a movie. Oh, speaking of that, The Gold Coast must be a movie. Plum Island must be a movie. And <laughs> and I want to talk about this a little bit later. I had it later in the notes, but we'll talk about it now. Charm School, of course, should be a movie. I think that came yeah. out in the mid-'80s as the Berlin Wall came down. Right, and yeah. it, Charm School is about a Russian spies. Yeah. But that's back on the front burner. Yeah, Charm School is a Cold War thriller. And I, you know, um, when I was writing it, nobody would have suspected that the Soviet Empire was going to collapse. What year did it come out? 85? 87. 87. Yeah, 87. It was only two years before the wall came down. But one of the characters in my book uh, in in Charm School says, uh, was a female character, says to the male protagonist, uh, this system has less than 10 years left in it, Mm. meaning the Soviet system. Yeah. And she was wrong. It had less than two years left. Nobody would have believed yeah, when you that. You said it, ten people yeah. would have taken the over yeah. on, right. on people the ten. Exactly. Yeah. And then by the time the paperback came out, um, the wall had come down. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, here's a book that's going to be damaged, you know, in terms of marketability by the fact that the Cold War is over. But no, this book is. Of all my books, I think this is my perennial bestseller, The Charm School, because probably because it's taught in schools, it's taught mm-hmm. along with Cold War. It's a good example of Cold War fiction, that type of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a good story is a good story. It doesn't matter. It's like a lot of movie producers talking about movies. They say, well, the Cold War's over, you know. Mm-hmm. But we don't make Cold War movies. Well, World War II was over 75 years ago. I mean, come yeah. on, people. Well, there was that show, uh, The Americans, with Kerry Russell. And very well, The Charm School it blows doors on that. The Charm School is one of my favorite of your books. I'm happy to hear it's taught in schools because your books are not really a genre book in this, that sense. They're, they're also literate, particularly The Gold Coast, which I think was compared to Jane Austen and other you know, more literary works. It is a much more literary work of yours. Well, thank you. It's, it was compared to... Uh, uh well, uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's obviously, uh, you know, his uh, Great Gatsby because it was it was kind of a takeoff on Gatsby in some ways, but a contemporary takeoff and uh, yeah, and that, that was good. It's good to see good reviews, but sometimes the better reviews when you when you get literary and the reviews get so good, you realize sales are going to go down. So in this case, they didn't. It's it not was, good for uh, the airplane, right? Right. One last quick question on process before we jump into the other the your sort of phase two of, of great books are you a coffee drinker like me i, I chug yeah, yeah. gallons of coffee while i'm writing yeah not only my coffee drink i've encouraged my three children to drink coffee <laughs> uh because it stimulates the imagination yeah. and uh and my my son alex is co-authoring books with me now and uh, he, he admitted, he said, yes, he says, by the fourth cup of coffee, my mind is racing. But do you find that, so I, I start usually at 9 a.m. and I drink coffee, yeah, and yeah. by the time 1 p.m. comes around, I've had six cups of coffee. I've yeah. kind of written what I could write, but then I'm yeah. garbage the rest of the day. I've just had too much coffee. you got to kind of pace the coffee, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I'm like you, about 9 o'clock, I'll have my first, I actually have my first cup at 7 a.m. But when I sit down at the desk around 9, 9.30, yeah, I'm, I'm back Ready to the to coffee. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. You know, sometimes the heart starts to beat and all that. And, you know, I, I've written actually through the night. I don't know if you have. I've had a couple of occasions where I thought I was on such a great roll that I've written till dawn. I had three occasions like that. Wow. And um, 
But then you realize the next morning that it might not have been as good as you thought it was <laughs> at three in the morning when you were racing and you were high, high on caffeine. But caffeine is the only stimulant I use to write. Yeah. So back to after the pen names and paperbacks, you're writing as Nelson DeMille, 1978. Your first hardcover comes out by the Rivers of Babylon. It's not only a huge success, but that was a different time in the book business. It was a bigger time. It being a breakout big star in 1978 was different than it is now. Can you describe what that was like? Yeah, well, I guess I can. I mean, it was different. definitely a different time. And uh, there wasn't as many uh, big hardcover books coming out. A lot of books were uh, paperback originals then. And I had graduated from paperback original to hardcover. Uh, you got more review attention. This is my first novel, and nobody knew who I was. And I got about 35 reviews. Today, even a best-selling novelist, lucky if you get 10 reviews. Um, it was a it was an event, and the publishers made it a, a, an event. Um, one of the first people to do that was Bernie Geis, who was my mentor with Valley of the Dolls. He made it an event. He did Times Square. He did the whole thing. Uh, books were, were hot. Why? Because Polly, you had a you know a literate population without a lot of TV, without a lot of internet, mm-hmm. without no eBay. <laughs> and there was there was no internet. There was nothing. You either read or you watched uh, you know crap on uh, network TV. So it was kind of the golden era of books. I, yeah. like, I mean, a big bestseller back then yeah. was selling millions of copies. Millions of not, copies, not exactly. Tens right. Or yeah. maybe a couple hundred thousand. Something like uh, The Exorcist, Jaws, and The Godfather. Godfather, yeah. Sell 10 to 12 million paperbacks. And, you know, commensurate number of uh, hardcovers. Yeah, these, these days, that's a, that would be a crazy outlier. You know, the, the yeah. Harry Potter stuff does that. And, right. you know, a couple people might hit that as a real outlier. Yeah, maybe a children's book, some religious books. You know, you'll have a built-in audience and you can sell mm-hmm. that many. But as far as mainstream fiction, uh, no, you'll never sell 12 million books anymore. And the book, I am assuming the book parties and the book festivals had a different vibe then too. I think there was a little more partying going on around that side of the, yeah, the business in the publishing 70s Publishing used to be, be better with the parties. The, <laughs> uh, the pub party, the launch party, that type of thing when you launch the book. And uh, and all the literary events were uh, a little bit more, uh, I'd say, a little bit freer in terms of alcohol and what people did and said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all become a little bit more reserved and we've become a little more politically correct and we watch what we do, we watch what we say. Um, and I, I said to my son, who's just starting out, uh, we did one book together, The Deserter. I said, you don't know what this business used to be like, and maybe it's just as well you don't, you don't know. But I said, it used to be a lot more collegial and a lot more friendly. And um, those are the days where you just, if you were on the street, I remember being on Fifth Avenue and the Thai Water Building was in front of me, and I was a, I was a Warner author. This is before security, before, you know, you didn't have to stop in the lobby. I just walked into the building. I took the elevator up just to chat and have a cup of coffee with my editor. Well, those days are over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't pal around the way we used yeah, to. Yeah, the publishers don't really throw the book parties at all anymore. No, no. You know, there used to be big dinners and parties yeah, when a right. book came out. And, but that's a budget item that is no longer in the line. But even even the things that are low budget, like just meeting your editor after work for a bunch of beers and that type of thing, and you don't see much of that anymore. Uh, it's a different, it really is a different business. It's more of a business business than it, than it is, uh, you know, to a lot of people in those days when the salaries were lower, uh, it was a calling. People wanted mm-hmm. to be in the book business. A lot of them were trust fund babies, yes, it's true, and a lot of Ivy League and that type of thing, and, you know, and maybe they didn't need the money. 
uh, but they were in a business they considered uh, not not so much exotic, but an, an important business. And it wasn't important, and it still is an important business. Yeah. Books, you know, and even novels made a difference in those days. People read The Godfather they, with a common cultural experience yeah. because if you're selling 15 million copies, Everybody's read it. That puts a pass-along factor. Same with The Exorcist, and you could talk about these books. Uh, and Jaws, you could talk about them to anybody, and everybody's read them, uh, or, or that, at some point has seen yeah. the movie. Now the market is so fragmented. And you know, nobody, it's fragmented, you know. but I, I think the novel will still be with us a long time. Not, It may not have as big a piece of the pie, really, right. but there's nothing that does what the novel does. There are alternatives, but there's no substitute. No, there's no substitute. Uh, a novel, I mean, as a, for instance, if you listen to a novel on uh, audio, uh, it'll be 16 to 19 hours, somewhere in there, uh, as opposed to a, uh, a movie that'll be 90 minutes, so an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you're reading a novel, you're reading 16 to 18 hours of some author's inner thoughts. If the author is good, you're with that author and you're learning something and you're being entertained at the same time. Movies are kind of like snacks and TV is not even snacks. It's like it's just, you know, kind of a piece of candy. Now, the novel's got some depth and if they're done right uh, by people who are not afraid to write what they feel and we're getting more of this, more self-censorship, unfortunately. But uh, the novel is still the... The, the standard that everything else is is, is held to. It, you know, it's also the only thing that allows your imagination to really soar. If you're sitting watching a movie, it's totally passive. All right. the images done for you, all the costumes yeah. are done for right. you. If you're reading a novel, all of that work is on you. You are the costume yeah. designer and you right. are the set designer. You, yeah. you, you read the words, but then you create the pictures in your own mind. All the metaphorical stuff is eliminated in every other right. venue, except for the novel, which yeah. I think is just, you know, no one can do it better than in your own own head. Well put. <laughs> so through the 80s, you wrote a couple of your great standalones, like Cathedral, Charm School, 92, The General's Daughter comes out, yet another massive milestone for you. I think the movie was some years later with Travolta. Any exposure to Travolta other than his handsome mug selling paperbacks for you? <laughs> Turned out to be a very nice man. I went, you know, I got invited to the set the way all authors do. And uh, I went out to California, and they, yeah, when they pick you up at the airport, if it's a Cadillac in those days, that means you're at the bottom of the rung. Uh, a, a Mercedes was, uh, in a, you know, you were you were getting up there. Mm-hmm. Well, Rolls Royce in some cases. Dino De Laurentiis, who was a friend of mine, a great uh, producer, he would always have me picked up with a Rolls Royce, so I knew that I was, <laughs> I was still viable. Um, but this, you know, Mace Newfeld was the producer on um, the General's Daughter, and he became a friend. He just passed away recently at 98 years old. Um, you know, I went out to the set, you know, with some trepidation. Every author will have that, you know, love-hate thing with Hollywood. And I had seen the screenplay, and some of it was good, some of it was bad. Um, and uh, when I met Travolta, I didn't know what to expect. But he had a copy of my book in paperback, and it was all, had tabs all through it and highlighted lines. Okay. And he said, you know, they, the screenwriter took this out, I wanted this put back, and he's showing me the book. He's really totally into the book. He's, 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 he's fashioning or he's influencing the screenplay because they, they do daily screenplay changes. And every scene, he had found something he wanted from the book 
in the screenplay, mm-hmm. and I was I was I was flattered, obviously flattered, and uh, but I was also you know impressed with his yeah, intelligence. That's, that's great. <laughs> it was to hear. impressive. He read the book and he understood the book, and he knew the lines that should have been pulled out of the book, well, and put on the uh, on in the script, and the ones that uh, that the screenwriter did use that should have gone out. So you know, I mean, he's he's a great actor for one thing, um, but I think a lot of what you see w- with him. If that was an indication, I think he probably gives some feedback uh, into the script. A lot of big uh, actors will not do that. Mm-hmm. They're afraid. They don't know what to say. They, they just read what's there. Mm-hmm. But he actually, you know, he, he influenced the movie. And everybody understood how bright this guy was. Uh, and they let him, you know, they said, well, of course he's, you know. So they listened to him. When he, when he says, him. I, I, yeah. this part from the book should yeah. be in there, they exactly. said, you they got it, John. Exactly. exactly. No, that's great. So in 97... Plum Island comes out, and this is the introduction of Detective John Corey, who is my right. favorite of your characters, uh-huh. this irreverent, witty, clever, amazing observer of human behavior. Uh-huh. And uh, so, and he's been in a number, I think The Maze is the eighth John Corey novel, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. He's like, for example, there's a great line in, in The Maze that I loved, uh, this, this one guy, I don't want to give anything in the book away, but this won't, some guy comes in late for a meeting, and upon arriving late for the meeting he announces three or four different excuses of why he's late you know something on the road or whatever and john Corey thinks to himself more than one excuse means no excuse right which is perfect it's exactly <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> yeah Corey is kind of an interesting character i created him um you know specifically to be uh politically incorrect mm-hmm. it was the beginning of the political correct era i was in the doctor's office and it was a i think it was time magazine but it might have been Newsweek, and the front cover, the front cover, was a uh, it was an article about political correctness, which was new mm-hmm. back then, and I, you know, you, you know, you kind of see it creeping into the yeah. into the vocabulary, and you see it on TV, and I said I need somebody who's going to cut through the all this BS, and I, and it was meant to be a standalone. Plum Island was meant to be a standalone, and I wrote it as a standalone. If you read it, you know, you see that it just had a natural ending. But the and, and I guess the, the the publisher and the agents and my, and my editor were a little bit a um, little bit nervous about it because this guy was a little bit over the top. <laughs> and I said, you know, let it run. Trust me on this one. I think I've got something here. Mm-hmm. And the fan mail was like incredible. It was like some of it was vitriolic. And, you know, when you when you when you when you have that kind of bad fan mail, it's actually good fan mail because people uh, Well, you got a response. Yeah, you right. Gotta, you got a response. Yeah, you got their attention. But most of it was very positive, and they loved yeah. the character. So they, and I had never done a series before that, Doug. I, I was always, all my books were standalone. Mm-hmm. But the editor said, you know, I think we should make this, at least do a second one. Let's see how it looks. So John Corey is our protagonist in your latest, The Maze, which I read and love. This is oh, some of your you. best work. It's just a terrific book. So I read the acknowledgments. You gave credit to some folks who really helped you out over the last few years. Yeah. Um, your wife, you know, my friend and, and my wife Megan's friend, Sandy, passed away right. uh, from lung cancer a few years ago and right. must turn things up to identity. You have a young son. You have three kids, but James right. was very young at the time. So you credit some people who really helped you get through that period, helped you manage the household and, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, the work stuff. Yeah, well, you know, you know, and I know as you know, as a writer, you know, the outside world creeps in very quickly, and and it messes up what you do. I think, you know, a lot of people go to work and kind of fake it, just sit at the desk, and you know. But if you're writing, you got to, you know, you're producing, and uh, 
you know, I had a, I was, I was really blessed to have a good, you know, a good uh, staff around me. My professional staff in the office. I have two, I had two great uh, assistants, but also at home, a housekeeper and a uh, uh, and a nanny who I hired, who just, you know, was, was an amazing person. And people like, you know, uh, well, just friends too, but. Uh, People understood, I think, instinctively, or well, they just knew me for so long, that I need, you know, I needed to make a living like everybody else, and I was grieving, of course. Uh, but they, they, they all took James under their wing. Every, every parent, you know, he, mm-hmm. James went from losing a mother to having fifteen mothers, and it was, just, it was an amazing, just amazing to see how people were there for me. Um, they didn't have to be, but they, you know, uh, what's enough for them except to do the right thing and. Uh, maybe they wanted to see another book. I don't know. I was working on a book at the time. And it, did you ever have a moment where you think, like, I, I, I'm going to have to put writing on, on pause yeah, sure. or indefinitely or permanently? Yeah, of course, you know. But then I realized that, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, when you, when you lose a spouse and you have, uh, you know, my children, uh, you know, under 18, under 21 or whatever, you this is, this is your responsibility now. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I always consider myself a good father, but that was easy. It's easy to be a good father. It's hard to be the only parent, and uh, I give women a lot of credit who are single parents. I found myself single and raising, at that time, he was 12 years old. I can't imagine. Megan and I say that all the time. Yeah. I, if, if we were doing this alone, I, I don't know how we yeah. manage it. Was, even, if, not, not just the logistics and the time, it was just like someone to talk to. Of, you know, when yeah. you hit a roadblock or a, a difficulty, yeah. it's just you need someone to bounce the ideas around yeah. with. And these kids, you know, are, they're, they're, every generation compa- complains about another, you know, the younger generation. And in my case, is kind of a skip to generation. I mean, I'm in my 70s and I have a child in, uh, 12 years old. Uh, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, and he was grieving too, obviously. And as he got older, he became more of a teenager. He became an alien. They all become aliens at some point. Um but, you know, the bottom line is it doesn't matter how many people you have around you, how blessed you might be and be able to hire a, a nanny, uh, you're still the parent and mm-hmm. it's still you. And uh, I still make the decisions. And um, it's not easy, um, especially since I'm still working. I mean, at this age, I normally, most people would have retired. But, you know, enjoy, hey, I enjoy what I do and... Um, mm-hmm. Be I have a contract, and, and there are people <laughs> depending on me too. Well, you, you know, you're also such a generous and kind person that it's natural oh, that you have an amazing network that was well, immediately yeah. there for you and James. Yeah. So it was. It was but we miss Sandy. She was a great friend. And, Thank you. And, a, and you know, obviously a, an mm-hmm. adoring wife to, to wow. you. But well, I uh, noticed you had mentioned that in the acknowledgments, and just wanted to yeah. to mention that here. But um, in addition to the maze, which is a fantastic return of John Corey, you are writing with Alex now, your other son. And you've got one out and one on the way, one, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We have uh, we have the deserter out. The deserter was based loosely on the Bo Bergdahl desertion case. You remember Bo mm-hmm. Bergdahl oh, yeah. Yeah. took a hike in Afghanistan, and uh, I just found it amazing because having been in the war myself, I'm trying to picture myself deserting in Vietnam, where would I go? <laughs> <laughs> Sound like World War Two. Uh, these guys on the Western Front deserted to Paris, and that's okay. You know, you figure <laughs> that sounds like fun. But where do you, you know, in Vietnam, where do you desert to? And in Afghanistan, I just found the whole thing amazing. And of course, he was captured by the Taliban, uh, Bo Bergdahl. But I thought there was a story there. And this is part of what it is to be uh, a writer. 
Uh, there are weird stories out there. Some are weird in a way that can be novelized or fictionalized. Some are just weird. You don't want you don't want to touch them. But I presented it to my son, who's a screenwriter. Alex is a screenwriter, and uh, uh, he he's, he was doing well as a screenwriter. He had a a student film from UCLA Film School won first place at Comic Con, so he knew what he was doing. He knew how to structure a you know a story, Act One, Act Two, Act Three is what all, they all come down to. Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and he knew dialogue and all that. But when I called him, I remember calling him one night because I had a contract for a for three books, co-authored, and I. I had a co-author that didn't work out, and I had to let him go. And uh, so I called Alex one night, and I said, um, "How would you like to co-author a book with me?" <laughs> he said, "I think I'd rather have, rather stick myself in the eyes <laughs> with needles and work with you." Uh, he said, I don't, "I don't understand the novel, da da da." You know, but uh, I kind of talked him into it, and the, the easy part of talking him into it had to do with the money. Yeah, I, I was going to say it was well, probably a nice check. Said, I said, how, you know, I, said, I mentioned the number to him, and, you know, mm-hmm. he got quiet on the phone, right? Yeah. I'm in. Well, he, and he's married with a child, so, uh, like so a how, lot of how do people, you break it up? And, so, it, group writing seems almost impossible to yeah, me, particularly for yeah. fiction. So, so, do you, like, are you storyboarding and he writes, or you trade mm-hmm. chapters, or how, how does it work? Uh, good question. And, and you know, uh, I had written, I co authored only one book before that. It was May Day, uh, which was made into a t- uh, TV movie, as you mentioned. And I did that with a friend of mine, a childhood friend, uh, Tom Block, a U.S. Air pilot, and a lot of he did a lot of magazine pieces. He, and we rewrote May Day together, but it was a it was contentious, and we kind of uh, it damaged our relationship for a while. We're friends again, but at uh, that time, so I was a little a little, a little bit skittish about working with my son, uh, but I decided up front that you know he. He had a lot of the credentials. He knew he, we didn't need a story a storyboard. I, I said, but I have to present you with what the publisher wants, which is the Bo Bergdahl fictionalized, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of uh, talked about it for a bit. And he just simply wrote the first draft. Alex wrote uh, the whole first draft. He wrote the whole first draft, right, exactly. Deserter, great. Yeah. And then I just read it and gave him a lot of suggestions. I did some rewrites on the second, on the, on the, on the draft. And um, we didn't like that. I let him finish it. I said, "You got to, you got to push ahead." Yeah, Is that you the plan going forward? He, he's going to do. Yeah, yeah that, that's what we're doing yeah. now. We, he's he's almost finished with the second book. Um, we call Bloodlines, and it's the same characters as the series. The characters are Scott Brody and uh, Megan uh, Maggie Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, they are Army Criminal Investigation Division, and they go all over the world solving. Tough cases for the army. Yeah. It was a good setup because you you can change venues. The first venue was Venezuela, um, where the Bergdahl character had deserted to, and this venue was Berlin, and the next venue could be any place. And uh, and it's 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 a cop book in one way, but they're army cops. So uh, and Alex didn't have a lot of background in the military, but I had that background. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he, he his stuff is a little bit more. Uh, maybe serious uh, than than my stuff, but I taught him how to inject humor <laughs> into. Uh, I said, "Cops, cops are funny. They, they, they have to be yeah, funny." Yeah, so you totally capture that in, in the uh, maze and all the giant all your books. Uh, really, uh, I mean, the 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 Gold Coast, which is your you know, sort of more literary effort in some ways, is also hilarious. But all the John Corey novels 
every every page there's a laugh out loud moment of some witty remark that is just exactly gets I think cop humor. Um, cop humor. I know soldier, a few cops who GI that humor. That is exactly right. GI humor. Somebody asked me what I thought of uh, the movie uh, uh, Platoon, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, I was in Vietnam and. Um, uh, he kind of captured, you know, the the the, the weapon wharf of combat, and but what he forgot was the GI humor, and I don't know how you can forget that, but I think he just thought it wasn't appropriate. But uh, you can't write about, you know, you can't write about soldiers in combat without the humor. Right, it's just a dark kind of gallows humor that that gets you through every day, and the uh, and police are the same. So you know, once you realize that, look, Americans, are, you know, Americans. Maybe not so much today, but growing up, when I grew up, they, you know, uh, they're very humorous. It's, it's, that's it's you know. a humorous way of coping with, yeah. with some of this Absolutely. stuff. It's not, I mean, in that sense, it's not just gratuitously irreverent to right. do it. It's actually right. accurate to the human right. condition. Exactly. So before I let you go, I'm going to have a little more scotch. And then yeah. I had a couple of sort of quick hit fun questions to ask you as we close it out. All right. I'm so ready. John Corey, returning to John Corey in the maze. Uh, I read a while back where you mentioned that Bruce Willis was the actor that you had pictured could play John yeah. Corey. I, I think these days it's probably over for Bruce and that yeah. opportunity. But who do you think of present day would you like to see play in The Maze or Plum Island? Oh, you know, that's a good question. And I, 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 you know, to be honest with you, I can't even answer it. Uh, I mean, there's so many uh, people out there that I think would be suitable, but... You know, I never thought Travolta was suitable, you know, for um, my character, Paul Brenner, who's a South Boston Irish, but he pulled it off. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I remember years ago when I, they said Marlon Brando was going to be the godfather, I said, this is a joke, right? He's not going to be the <laughs> godfather. But he was the godfather. So, uh, you know, and I, I don't know that it is my, I don't know a lot of contemporary actors, <laughs> yeah. but Bruce Willis was a guy. He actually called me in my office. I don't know how he got my phone number. He actually called me in my office once. My secretary said, Bruce Willis is on the phone. I said, no, it's not Bruce Willis. It's somebody <laughs> selling you, trying to sell you something. No, no, she said, it's Bruce Willis. I recognize the voice. And I spoke to him, and he said, I uh, I understand I'm supposed to be John Corey. Somebody told him that. Mm-hmm. We had a pleasant conversation. He wanted to do it. But Hollywood, you know, the way it works is just too many layers of yeah. agents and yeah. managers and producers and people give the red light and no green light. So it never happened. But, but uh, I, I, the diehard era Bruce Willis, I can yeah. completely picture as, yeah, as John Corey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I have also read Hemingway, Graham Greene, Steinbeck, Truman Capote, Tom Wolfe are some of your favorite writers. Yeah. Anyone to add to that list? Uh, contemporary writers. Um, yeah, anyone still breathing? Uh, no, I can't think of anybody. I should. I mean, I, you know, Doug, we 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 have a we have a nice circle of friends who are writers, and if I mention one, I'd have to mention everyone. <laughs> and if I miss one, God forbid. So I'm not going to even go there. But uh, no, nobody's still breathing. But uh, but of that generation, uh, Somerset Maugham, uh, James yeah. Jones, yeah, uh, Norman Mailer. You know, I mean, they they were great writers. They were absolutely great writers. And uh, I don't think we see that kind of writing in America anymore, yeah. to be honest. How about as a kid, say, under 14, favorite book? Under 14? Uh, wow, these are tough questions. Again, my father I mean, used For to me, it was like me. I started Hardy Boys, and I graduated to, to well, uh, yeah, Tolkien, uh, and I graduated to you. I did Hardy Boys, and I did uh, 
something called the Five Little Peppers and Their Friends and all these kind of juvenile, you know, like pre preteen books. But my father used to feed me books that were difficult. The one that he gave me was The Odyssey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I never forget. I was in sixth grade. So how old was I? I was 13, I guess. And uh, I'm reading it. I'm saying, I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> but I know this is something important. Yeah, but something's but, stuck know, in there. Right. How about books uh, on, this is the classic, you know, New York Times, books on your nightstand question. But you can't say, you can't say any books of people who are begging you for a blurb. Like, what's a book that is naturally on your nightstand that you that you paid money for? Uh, I get, you know, like, I'm sure you do too, so many um, uh, advanced reading copies, what we call ARCs. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wound up reading. And, uh, you know, there's one now called The Siberia Job. You never heard of it because the authors, it's about Russia and the and right after the uh, you know the fall of the Soviet Union, and this is what I read. You know, because people ask me for blurbs, this is why I'm reading them. Uh, to the extent that I you know read fiction, I don't read a lot of fiction, but I do read the fiction of either you know authors or agents are giving me books, people I know, people I trust, uh, editors saying Nelson, you know this, this is a great book. We're gonna do it. We're gonna, we're gonna bring this book out in a big way. We'd love a quote from you. Mm-hmm. Very flattering mm-hmm. that people are still asking me for quotes. That's what I wind up reading in terms of fiction. Uh, in terms of nonfiction, anything that, you know. I just read the Great Mortality about the plague in Europe in the 1300s. Mm-hmm. Why I have no idea. I love nonfiction. I, I, yeah. I you shouldn't say this is a novelist, but I. I would rather read nonfiction sometimes than fiction. I mix it up too. I go through yeah, phases right. and, and things like that. How about the, uh, f- your favorite book festival? And this could be from any decade because I know in the '80s they're different from today. But is there a favorite book fair? Or fe- you know, I know you've been to yeah. been to these in Germany. You've been yeah. to them in Texas. And I'm going to one. One. I'm going to I think two when the book comes out. But uh, but uh, the short answer is the Frankfurt Book Fair. It's just an amazing Frankfurt, Germany. Yeah, Frankfurt, Germany book fair. It's an amazing collection of um, the publishing community all over the world coming mm-hmm. together, and to see the uh, collegiality is that a word? I think so. And you're, uh, you're the Mensa in this right, conversation. Yeah, so right. truly, you are. If the audience doesn't know, Nelson is a Mensa, so he is no, literally a genius. I wouldn't want to retest on that. <laughs> that was a few scotches ago. Uh, but Frankfurt is fun. It's fun, and it's also important. I think. Because it's a, it's kind of a uh, a marketplace of ideas. Uh, it's called a, a rights. In other words, you're, you're selling foreign rights. Americans will sell the rights to books to you know every foreign country mm-hmm. for translation, and and the same way these countries will sell to America for uh, to be translated into English or America or the UK, and um, and these people have. Maybe nothing in common, including the Arab world, comes to these things too, which they can't publish a lot of the books that we read because of the, the either the sex or the you know the, uh, the the females in the books. But they they do come and they want to you know they want to be part of the publishing world. And after the wall came down, it was amazing to see all these Eastern European countries now at the Frankfurt Book Fair free mm-hmm. to buy um, to buy books that were banned. Uh, one of my first sales after the wall came, after the Soviet Union collapsed, 
was uh, the Charm School, which is a Cold War thriller that doesn't put the Russians in a very good light. The Russian publisher bought it, published it, and it was a bestseller in Russia. It was amazing. (laughs) Within two years of the the wall coming down. I didn't know. That is one of my favorite of your books, by the way. And apparently the Russians loved it, too. was amazing. And you feel like the books were breaking down borders, you know. Maybe it was a little bit more optimistic in the 90s and up to, you know recently but i think it's still there frankfurt is the biggest book fair and it's the one where ideas are exchanged and people That's come it. together i wonder why that is although you know these these giant corporations that own penguin random house and uh, yeah. i mean these are german companies that own some of yeah, the major yeah. you know there's the big 5 now i guess going to the big 4 pretty soon once yeah, sns well, becomes yeah. part of penguin random house but these are german companies that own yeah some of our big publishers here in the us yeah that's a that's a recent phenomenon and you know uh, we have we have laws in this country that foreigners can't own new magazines or newspapers or TV or radio because it's opinion making. Mm-hmm. But that law doesn't extend to book publishing, and it really ought to because we we you really do have to think about who owns the company that you're working for. Uh, if a company, there's no reason under the sun. Why a major publisher can't be bought by communist China, for instance, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that would be a very chilling effect on yeah. some kinds of writing with that within that publishing. Well, let's see, Hachette—that's French-owned. That's right? French-owned, right? And then right. Penguin Random and Macmillan it's are German. German, right? Yeah. S and S is American. It's and, American now. And, right. uh, Harper is American. Harper is American. Yeah, so that's right. it. Basically, yeah. those yeah. Are the big ones. Yeah. All right. Final question. Yeah. One piece of good advice. For anyone on any topic, and I'll, while you're thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a uh, mine for anyone who wants to write a novel. Go out and read *The Gold Coast* by Nelson DeMille and fall in love with it. That's your best shot. Well, thank you. Advice on any subject? Um, Just one piece of good advice that comes to mind. Uh, my my advice, like to my my 16 year old, is be yourself. Yeah. Be yourself. Don't try to don't try to BS people. They are like get it right away when you're BSing when you're trying to BS a girl about something or you're BSing a teacher. Uh, be you. You know who you are and be you. Yeah. And when you and when you hone you and when you changes, you'll follow you and you'll know who you are as you as you progress up the ladder of hopefully maturity and uh, and honesty. You know, that, that rounds back to your earlier piece of advice, too, on reading the Somerset Moms and the Hemingways right. and the Steinbeck. Like, don't try to write like those guys. you got to write right. in your voice. I, if you go out and try and write like Hemingway, you're going to sound like an ass. You've right. got to write as you write. Well, there's a contest to write like Hemingway, as you know, but the contest is, is meant to be a joke. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, good cautionary uh, tale for all of us, right? You know, be who you are. If you're a writer, be who you know. Be who you are. You have a voice, and it's good. And uh, you know, your stuff is is maybe more literary in some ways than mine, and I enjoy it because you know, it flows kind of thing. And uh, I'm not for everybody, believe me. My characters, all my characters, have a you know, having a, a you know, have a. Uh, a worldview that might not match somebody else's worldview, but it is uh, true to form of right. the worldview of many who are right. like that character. Exactly. Well, Nelson, thank you so much for being here. It really is my honor that you could come in here, and oh. and it's uh, great to see you again. And we'll have to have to get together uh, for for dinner soon. That'd be great, Doug. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.